This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I have to confess that uh, I'm not in the studio today. In fact, as you're hearing these words, I should be somewhere north of Bogota, Colombia. Assuming, of course, I've not been kidnapped by the FARC guerrillas. Of course, almost all of our programming is available on our website, radioparallax.com, and we would uh, uh, think that if you spend some time in our archives, you will be rewarded for your efforts. Let us start this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question today is the 2nd. Of December. It was on December 2nd in 1682 that the first Earl of Shaftesbury fled to Amsterdam from England following charges of treason. The Earl had fought to keep the Roman Catholic Duke of York, who later became King James II, from the throne on suspicion of royal efforts to elevate the position of Roman Catholics. And thank God in America we've avoided a lot of this strife by not having any sort of official religion. King James II apparently was a closet Catholic, and strife over his elevation to becoming king um, resulted in him having to flee the country himself somewhat later, which was quite a big mess in English history, which we don't have time to sort out. But, you know, by God, it'd make a great segment one day, and we're determined to do that, starting from Oliver Cromwell, I think, and going forward. The story of the English Civil War and the and the, the temporary emergence of the Puritans as leaders in England had a lot to do with what happened in America. Because once the Puritans were kicked out, they were repeatedly kicked and, uh, and basically sent across the Atlantic to America. They became some of our pilgrim fathers. If the truth be told, the Puritans really weren't much fun. They didn't approve of dancing, the theater, drinking, singing, sexual intercourse. And I guess when it comes to fun, that leaves what? Fishing, farming, and working a forge? I don't know. Again, this is a story for another day. Speaking of religious strife in Europe, it was on December 2nd in 1804 in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris that Napoleon Bonaparte was crowned Emperor Napoleon I. Although Pope Pius VII handed Napoleon the crown, he decided he wasn't going to let the pontiff crown him. Instead, he placed the (laughs) crown on his own head. Same one thing about Napoleon. He wasn't a guy afraid to toot his own horn. In fact, one year later on this date, December 2nd, 1805, Napoleon defeated the Russian and Austrian armies at the Battle of Austerlitz, sometimes called the Battle of the Three Emperors. On December 2nd, 1823, U.S. President James Monroe proclaimed the new U.S. foreign policy initiative that would later become known as the Monroe Doctrine. It forbade European interference in the American Hemisphere, but also asserted U.S. neutrality with regard to future European conflicts. And I think in this instance pointed out how international law can be a load of bull. Of course, that's just my personal opinion, opinion which in no way necessarily reflects that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the Regents of the University of California, none of whom, to my knowledge, have ever taken a position on the Monroe Doctrine. On this date in 1859, anti-slavery activist John Brown was hanged for treason in Virginia. 
On December 2nd in 1942, the Italian-born Nobel Prize-winning physicist Enrico Fermi directs and controls the world's first nuclear chain reaction, which was behind the bleachers of Stagg Field at the University of Chicago. This ushered in the nuclear age. On December 2nd in 1969, and I'm sorry to say I can remember this, the Boeing 747 jumbo jet was publicly demonstrated for the first time. Two years later, 1971, the Soviet craft, the Soviet spacecraft Mars 3 entered orbit around the Red Planet. Its lander became the first to soft land on the Martian surface. Unfortunately, its uh, television transmission lasted about 30 seconds, after which the spacecraft went dead and was never heard from again. In fact, when it comes to, uh, to sending spacecraft to Mars, the Russians were just snake bit. About that same time, they put another orbiter uh, around Mars, only to find that a planetary-wide dust storm had just started and obscured the entire surface throughout the working lifespan of the spacecraft. On December 2nd in 1990, the first free parliamentary elections were held in a now reunified Germany. And finally, on December 2nd, just nine years ago in 2001, the Enron Corporation under CEO Kenneth Lay files for bankruptcy. It was up to that point the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history and one of the most controversial. Just days before they filed for bankruptcy, the company paid $55 million in bonuses to some 500 high-level employees, presumably for a job well done. Just before its crash landing on Earth's surface, Enron had been the largest financial contributor to the campaign for president of George W. Bush. All right, our quote of the day is about uh, the late, great Daniel Shore, who passed away in August. CBS News correspondent Bob Schieffer said about Shore, he had a great way of irritating government officials because he always came up with the truth. Our quote of the day comes from Zora Neale Hurston, who said, there are years that ask questions and years that answer. Kind of like that one. Our joke of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, who noted a couple weeks back, former President George W. Bush's new memoir has already sold 800,000 copies. In other news, the Bush Presidential Library just purchased its first 800,000 books. Our stat of the day is that the United States has been at war for 47 of the 230 years it has existed, or about 20% of our history. I believe our war in Afghanistan is now the longest war in U.S. history, and uh, it has no end in sight. We'll talk more about that later in the program. But let us do what we love to do on this program, and that is talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for heterosexual rights after Tom Freeman and Catherine Doyle, a straight British couple, demanded that they be granted a civil partnership, a legal union available only to same-sex couples. The titles of husband and wife don't appeal to us, said Doyle. We feel like civil partners, and we want the government to recognize that. And you know, that seems like a pretty good idea to me. 
Although if you're only civil partners, does that keep the divorce lawyers out of the whole deal? One would hope. And it was a bad week a couple weeks back for accepting victory, a story we mentioned in passing at the time, after Stephen Cowan of Wisconsin apparently became so enraged that Bristol Palin keeps advancing to the next round on Dancing with the Stars that he blasted his TV set with a shotgun. This apparently led then to a 15-hour standoff with police. His wife told the authorities, Stephen did not think she was a good dancer. And a couple weeks back, it was an ugly week for feminism. After human rights activists expressed outrage over the election of Saudi Arabia to a new United Nations panel intended to promote women's rights. Apparently, a dozen nations, including Iran, which, by the way, was rebuffed, vied for 10 seats on the UN Women, which is a panel slated to begin work in January. Saudi Arabia, in case you're unaware, does not permit women to drive or use many public facilities. Women have to be covered in public in order to travel, have to have the permission of a male relative. I believe has to have the male relative travel with them. You may recall that in 2007, a Saudi court imposed a sentence, which was later withdrawn, of 200 lashes on a 19-year-old woman because she'd been gang-raped. It's sad to note that the Iranian Nobel, Prize, Nobel Peace Prize winner Shirin Erbadi said the inclusion of Saudi Arabia was a joke, adding that the status of women in the kingdom is even worse than in Iran. Of course, we have to keep in mind, we're mad at the Iranians, but the Saudis are our good pals. So if a few thousand royal family members want to control a nation of 16 million and want to ban women from driving, that seems to be okay with us, doesn't it? Well, at least to our oil companies. And from the Only in America file, we have the following. I believe we mentioned this a couple weeks back, but it's true. A Connecticut man convicted of killing a 14-year-old boy on a bicycle is suing the boy's parents because the boy wasn't wearing a helmet. Daniel Weaving is now serving 10 years in jail for running down Matthew Kinney while Weaving was driving 80 miles an hour. He's accusing the Kenny family of contributory negligence and says his conviction has caused him, quote, great mental and emotional pain and suffering, end quote. And yes, I have to apologize to the other nations of the world for the fact that while we do allow women to drive in America, we do balance that off by permitting jackass lawsuits of most of the most unimaginable nature. And why do we do that, you ask? Well, possibly because most of our legislators are lawyers. It should be noted that many other nations don't consider lawyers to be prime material to run the country. China, for example. Not necessarily the best example, considering their human rights record, but most of the Chinese leadership are engineers. We do have to admit, if you think about it, letting your nation being run by lawyers isn't the smartest idea. That's an opinion which uh, I have to admit some of you may disagree with. Although if you do, five will get you ten, you're a lawyer. All right, as you may know, we really like the Week magazine on this show. It's succinct summaries of, of items in the news that are of great value to uh, us on this program. They occasionally have a category called boring but important. We have to agree, this may strike you as boring, but it is important that 
the new START treaty is running into trouble. The White House is currently scrambling to save the nuclear arms pact with Russia after Republican opposition to the deal is hardening. The new START treaty, which the administration had hoped would see ratified by the Senate by the end of the year, calls for the U.S. and Russia to reduce their nuclear warheads by about 30%. You would think that having aging nuclear warheads pointed at one another for no good reason might be something we'd like to see modified. And of course, the START treaty is one of uh, Obama's top foreign policy goals. It would also facilitate mutual weapons inspections, which had ceased after the START-1 treaty expired about a year ago. Unfortunately, Republican Senator John Kyle whose support the White House has courted, said he's opposed to a, swift, to a swift vote in the treaty, arguing that more attention must be directed to modernizing the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Phrases like modernizing the U.S. nuclear arsenal generally mean spending vast sums of money on nuclear weapons, which frankly we're having a hard time making sense out of. Nuclear weapons were originally promoted in the 40s and 50s as a way of checking Soviet expansion around the world without uh, having to commit lots of troops to the enterprise. It subsequently morphed into something out of control, which is kind of a nuclear standoff we've had for the past 50 years, wherein it was pretty much assured that if one side started shooting nuclear weapons off at the other, it would destroy the world. Since false alarms are possible, and in fact, Boris Yeltsin... 15 or so years ago, uh, had to call off a Soviet nuclear strike on America after a rocket launch somewhere up in Norway triggered a false alarm in the USSR that uh, America was launching a nuclear attack. Thank God cooler heads prevailed and nuclear Armageddon was avoided. The relaxing of nuclear tensions seems like a good idea to us on this program, and uh, we hope the president will prevail. And here's an item that kind of whapped me upside the head when it uh, came to the subject of avoiding World War III. Apparently, the British pop singer James Blunt claimed last week that his refusal to obey an order from NATO's U.S. commander during the 1999 Kosovo conflict possibly averted World War III. Now, it may be a stretch to, uh, to think that insubordination may have saved the world, but Blunt, a former British cavalry officer, was at the head of a column of 30,000 NATO troops when his unit was supposedly ordered to wrest control of the Pristina airstrip from Russian forces. Blunt told the BBC last month that the direct command that came in from General Wesley Clark was to overpower them. Blunt says he protested the order and British General Sir Mike Jackson supported Blunt, saying, I'm not going to have my soldiers be responsible for starting World War III. Blunt says he risked a court-martial by refusing to attack the Russian forces. Don't know if it's true, but it's a hell of a scary story. But uh, let's go back to talk about missiles. President Obama went to Lisbon last month to try and uh, get some cooperation with NATO from the Russians on erecting a U.S.-planned anti-missile network in Europe, which causes us to kind of go, uh-huh. The point of a so-called missile shield, as envisioned by Ronald Reagan back in 1983 after he was bamboozled by nuclear scientist and uh, all-around wacko Edward Teller, the idea was that you could build a shield around the U.S. that would stop missiles from being able to rain down and attack us. 
Keller assured Reagan that it could be done with off-the-shelf technology. He was full of it. And 27 years later, the U.S. military has yet to demonstrate in any, court, in any sort of meaningful real-world example that it can shoot down missiles. One thing is clear, the missiles we are most concerned about shooting down were those of the Soviet Union, a nation which ceased to exist nine years later. And by the way, if I may be permitted to digress a moment, which I think I am permitted, being the host of the program, we had some crack people in the CIA back in the 80s uh, supposedly telling us that these, this idea that the Russians weren't that big of a threat was dead wrong. And in fact, the Russians were extremely powerful and bent on world conquest, which is why we had to do all sorts of extraordinary things to match them. These, uh, these crack Soviet experts included people like Condoleezza Rice and Robert Gates, currently our defense secretary. These people apparently failed to notice that the, US, that the USSR was about to collapse into the gutter like a drunk. And instead, Ronald Reagan embarked on this cockamamie scheme of building a missile defense shield, which has never gone away. In fact, we're now witnessing President of the United States, Barack Obama, and the President of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, talking about, I suppose, collaborating on a missile shield. And you have to ask the obvious question at this point, whose missiles are they worried about? They're our pals. China? What about North Korea? They seem to have several bottle rockets that are concerning people. No, the more you look into it, the less sense it all makes. In fact, as this discussion was going on over in Lisbon, Portugal, NATO's announcement of its plans for missile defenses carefully avoided specifying <laughs> which country they were going to be protecting us from. Although, of course, there was some speculation about it being Iran. Apparently, French President Nicolas Sarkozy, speaking with this customary edge, brushed aside such niceties and told a group of reporters, the threat comes from Iran. And uh, we'll talk more about Iran and a bunch of other stuff in our second segment, but let's uh, see if we can hear what our old friend Will Durst has to say. Hey guys, Will Durst here to weigh in on the whole TSA pat-down controversy. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not that I eagerly look forward to adding casual molestations to my pre-flight checklist, but to be perfectly honest, I don't care. At my age, the occasional wandering blue rubber glove is about all the action I can expect. Other people, however, are flipping out like wolverines bouncing off a submarine trampoline over the new regulations mandating that a prospective flyer submit to having his or her naughty bits exposed for all the world to see, or else agree to a groping that under normal circumstances would have any decent person collecting a wedding banquet hall quote or showing a federal marshal on the doll where you were touched. The real problem is not going to second base with complete strangers, but suspecting that no one has thought any of this out, since they're subjecting pilots to these same sub-Rosa muggings. Face it, you and I don't know nothing, but even we can figure out that pilots don't need explosives up their butt to bring down a plane. They keep making new rules based on what happened last week. We've already gone from taking off our shoes to surrendering our fluids to x-raying through our underwear. Pretty obvious what's next. First, they'll make it illegal for civilians to videotape the pat-downs because of national security, which is the federal equivalent of because I said so, that's why. And then the airlines will figure out a way to charge us for it all by calling body cavity searches impromptu prostate exams. 
In the meantime, just direct me to whichever TSA screener didn't volunteer for the job. And what other point of etiquette? Are we supposed to tip? Or only if there's a happy ending? Least they could do is provide a room where we can all have a post-encounter cigarette. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. <laughs> 